I'd hoped I would be spared this. But the ancient drives are too strong. Eventually, they catch up with us. We are driven by forces we cannot control to return home and take a wife or die. Bridge to all decks. It's time for a very epic new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I am Scott Vance, and I am very excited. And I could tell I'm Steve Morris, and you have sung arguably the most famous piece of Star Trek music ever. And we have, it is so famous that I, my kid, who's barely watched any Star Trek, I'm sure he knows it because it's on all sorts of YouTube videos and memes and stuff like that. Um, and I have to say that this episode of Mock Time has benefited maybe more than anything I can think of in a while from watching this the way we've been watching it. In in production order, thinking about the characters and the continuity, this is this really changed this episode for me. You, you know, you know, it's funny. Like when I was rewatching this, and actually, I rewatched it twice. I rewatched it to like take notes while I was watching it, and then I watched it again because it occurred to me after I took my notes that that because of a the way we've been covering this, the way we've been doing our deep dives and connecting everything, and I thought to myself, I'll bet Steve Morris is going to connect this episode in ways that that I can't even fathom. <laughs> so I better be I better bring my A game to this podcast on a mock time. And Steve, not only is the music so famous that it has been reused, spoofed, paid tribute to in TV shows like The Simpsons and Futurama. I remember when I saw the cable guy in uh, 1996, when Jim Carrey and Ben Stiller go to uh, uh, the uh, what, Renaissance, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they're fighting and <laughs> they're playing the, the Pop Farm music from, from a mock time. And, uh, uh, oh, wait a minute. No, it was directed by Ben Stiller. It was Jim Carrey and Matthew, Matthew Broderick. Broderick. Yeah. And Matthew Broderick goes, this isn't Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but this episode, first of all, a mock time is one of the greatest episodes of Star Trek, hands down. It is is one of the most special episodes of Star Trek because for everyone who loved Spock while watching season one, for everyone who made Spock the most popular character, the fan favorite, this was the payoff. This was their reward that they were getting not only a Spock central episode, but that we were seeing Vulcan and so many other things for the very, very first time. But what was it like for you when you saw Amok Time when you were younger? Well, I always loved the episode, but this is the thing, and this is, you more than me had a sense of production order and seasons and stuff like that. I really didn't think like that. And so this was just one episode uh, of the series that I loved. But what I didn't think about was all of the reveals and discoveries and evolutions of these relationships that actually happens in this episode. Because to me, they all existed in the same sort of time. Um, so... So it's, it, but it's always been one of my absolute favorites. And, and you know, uh, first things first about a mock time, you know, Steve, I have talked repeatedly about the photo novels. Yes. <laughs> uh, so much so that I, I'm going to figure out one way or another to get you a complete set, whether you want it or not, but deserve <laughs> it. But a mock time is, is a uh, uh, photo novel number 12, but more importantly, 
uh, a mock time is is not only the first appearance of the planet Vulcan, the Vulcan salute, the first time that we hear the words live long and prosper. Uh, this features what I think, and I hope you'll agree, I think you will, that a mock time features what is happens, what has to be Leonard Nimoy's greatest performance as Spock. I don't know if I, t- it's amazing, but it, so is this side of paradise. No, that's true. You know, like, so it, those, and of course, so is Wrath of Khan. So like, but it's an amazing performance. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, and a mock time. It's, it's a landmark episode. Great writing, great directing, great cinematography. Uh, the, the score by Gerald Freed, the wardrobe, the production design, the performances. This is uh, one of the, Best episodes. Uh, it, it was nominated for a Hugo Award in 1968 for Best Dramatic Presentation. Of course, it lost to City on the Edge of Forever. So, Mock Time was written by Theodore Sturgeon. This is actually his second teleplay for Star Trek. His first was for Shore Leave. And I remember, you know, when I was rewatching this episode and I was thinking back to our conversation of Shore Leave, which was a great conversation, by the way, how. Spock was on the bridge of the Enterprise for more than half that episode, and we never got to see his fantasy. What would that have been like? Uh, what would we have seen? Who would we have seen? Well, we're, we're seeing all of it here, right here and now, in A Mock Time. We're seeing Spock's home planet of Vulcan. The director of A Mock Time was Joseph Pevney. This was the 35th episode to film at, over a planned seven days normally the episodes were planned for six days right but because of the tremendous production that went into this episode they're like let's not kid ourselves we're gonna have to shoot this in seven days so that's what they did between june 9th and 19th 1967 not only is a mock time the 30th episode to air but they knew they had something really special here so they aired it on september 15th 1967, as the season two premiere. They premiered season two with a mock time. Talk about an episode that that showed so much promise, a promise that was delivered throughout at least the first half of season two. And then the irony is that they started season three by airing Spock's brain. (laughs) You know, what were they thinking? But anyway, so the total cost for this episode was $200,906, which made it $15,906 over budget. But that's okay because it's all there on the screen. This episode probably should have cost a whole lot more than it did. The score, this famous, this iconic score composed by Gerald Freed on July 19th, 1967, the visual effects were done by the Westheimer Company, so they created the Red Planet Vulcan that you see the Enterprise in orbit around. But uh, uh, this is an episode that actually, even though Theodore Sturgeon was credited for writing the screenplay, was actually uh, an idea that Gene Roddenberry came up with while brainstorming with Gene Kuhn. Mm. So his concept was actually dated December 5th, 1966. So Here's the thing with a mock time. It was originally pitched for season one. Mm. But by the time that Theodore Sturgeon was was getting into his his drafts and his outlines, he is a notoriously slow writer. So there was no way that they were going to make 
the first season. So it was the second season, and they wanted it to be filmed earlier, but again, because the the, the writing process was so slow and then there were rewrites, uh, it was like, well, we'll film it when we're ready, but we are going to premiere our season two with it. Uh, his His pitch notes, Theodore Sturgeon's pitch notes, uh, came in on December 6th, the day after Gene Roddenberry's concept. And December 6th, and it was called, are you ready for this title? Mm-hmm. Spock Blows Top. <laughs> oh, jeez. That couldn't have been a real, was that a real serious title? Or was uh, that that just... was a serious enough title to make the notes. Wow. <laughs> uh, but when he submitted his story outline, Theodore Sturgeon, on December 12th, he changed it, thankfully, to a mock time. He submitted two draft teleplays, the second of which came in on May 5th. Then DC Fontana did her rewrite in the middle of, of May. Gene Kuhn did a script polish, a final draft teleplay on May 31st. Roddenberry did a script polish, a revised final draft teleplay on June 1st. And then Gene Kuhn came back and did a second script polish, a revised final draft teleplay on June 5th. But this is definitely an episode that, even though even though Theodore Sturgeon, he's the writer that you see, the fact that you had Dorothy Fontana and Gene Kuhn and Roddenberry himself involved with the rewrites is why they this episode just works so well right. because they all they all made it great. <clears throat> they all played to their strengths as writers, especially Fontana. You know who. Because of because of this episode in Journey to Babel, she she became like the go to person for right. all things Vulcan. Right. Would you like to know what was going on in the world? I would love to hear it. What's so crazy is that this has now become the continuing saga of history now. Because as you remember in our last episode where we left off, we were right in the middle of the Six Day War between Israel and its Arab neighbors. And on June 9th, Israel had been under attack from Syria. They were shooting mortars from the high ground from a place called the Golan Heights. And on June 9th, Israel took the Golan Heights from Syria. And that meant that now, instead of having high grounds that could fire down into Israel, they had the high ground that could fire down into Syria. And they were less than 40 miles away from the capital of Damascus. At that time, Nasser, the president of Egypt, announced that he was resigning. That the, this war that started just a few days ago had been such a disaster, this war where Egypt said they were going to wipe Israel out, that the president has actually decided to resign. Wow. And tens of thousands of Egyptians marched to his residence, begging him not to. And the next day, he withdrew his resignation, remained Amazing. the leader hmm. of Egypt. And on June 10th, the Six-Day War ended. Oh. Syria and Israel signed a UN mediated ceasefire. I mean, there's so much history that happened just in that amount of time. Amazing. Israel lost 777 dead, 2,586 wounded. Egypt, Syria, and Jordan had 15,000 dead. So while they're filming Amok Time, yes. the war ended. Ended. Oh, yeah. man. Wow. Um, and there were hundreds of tanks and airplanes along the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights in the West Bank. This was a massive, fast, overwhelming victory from Israel. Mm-hmm. And on the Sabbath, which was this day, thousands of Israelis wandered into the streets of old Jerusalem that had been forbidden to them through uh, the Arab neighborhoods, and the Palestinians were cautiously friendly at the time. Interesting. Really interesting. 
The same day, the Soviet Union severed diplomatic relations with Israel. Also on the same day, Spencer Tracy died. Oh, wow. Hmm. So we know this is right in the filming of Guess Who Came to Dinner. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Which is his last film. On June 11th, there was a race riot in Tampa after a white policeman shot and killed a fleeing black youth who was 19 years old, Martin Chambers. On June 12th, on the final day of its 66-67 session, the Supreme Court issued its decision on Loving versus Virginia. Oh, Loving, yeah. Unanimously deciding against Virginia's law against interracial marriage. They said it was unconstitutional, and Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. So that reminds me, the Loving case. Yeah. Okay, so one of our listeners commented on either Apple Podcasts or on our YouTube page or on our Facebook page. Uh, I can't remember exactly where the comment was, but one of our listeners actually commented on the Loving case when they were giving feedback on Metamorphosis. Mm. Think about it. Yeah. Like, here's an episode that could definitely be seen as a metaphor for interracial romance and yeah. love. And the the listener who's made this comment said, I wonder if Gene Kuhn was aware of the Loving case while he was writing Metamorphosis. Mm. And it certainly fits because it was filmed while this was going on. Yeah. Uh, but just, just a very interesting uh, perspective. It's, a, it's amazing to me that there, there's certain laws where it's just shocking to me how recently they existed, you know, that it oh, was yeah. illegal for a, a p- people of different races to get married in Virginia in the 60s. In, in the 60s, it was illegal to be a homosexual. Yeah. Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, who, who was very much, uh, you know, a homosexual, he, he had to keep it hidden, and, you know, he would have his uh, dalliances in such secret because it wasn't just like it was like, you know, uh, people had uh, intolerance right. about, about being you gay, but it was, <laughs> like, illegal. I mean, the, to fathom that it was against the law is, uh, uh, you know, just, you just, can't, I just can't wrap my head around yeah. it. Uh, on June 13th, Thurgood Marshall was nominated as the first African-American justice to the Supreme Court. On June 14th, we launched Mariner 5 towards Venus. On June 16th, it was the first day of the Monterey Pop Festival. Oh, yes! In Monterey, California. This this is, many people say this is the first, like, of the major music festivals going forward. And on opening night, we could see the association, Lou Rawls, the Animals, and Simon and Garfunkel. Nicole. Bingo. Yeah. Simon and Garfunkel. Can yeah. you imagine seeing Simon and Garfunkel at Monterey Pop? That must have been awesome. Yeah, I saw Simon and Garfunkel at Day on the Green in... Oakland, California, at the Coliseum in maybe 1983 or four. Oh wow! Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, was... the, the Monterey Pop Festival. Uh, that that was, of course, you know Woodstock gets all the credit, you right. know, because it was Woodstock. That was two years later. But Monterey Pop, like a, a, everyone, actually sounds pretty good. You know, it wasn't like it was like overwhelming like Woodstock was. And you know, one of my one of my other favorite bands actually played at Woodstock, and that's The Birds. Mm. And uh, you can hear, I mean, you can watch the documentary. It's on, I think it's the Criterion Collection, but it's fantastic Monterey pop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, On June 17th, the People's Republic of China detonated a hydrogen bomb. They joined the group of four after the U.S., USSR, and the U.K. Mm. 
Israel begins the process of making the Palestinians leave the Jewish quarter in the old city. They evict anyone who's renting. They pay off anyone who owns their places. And, and all the Palestinian residents were forced to sign a documenting, document relinquishing their rights of return. Oh, man. 600 buildings were taken by the Israeli government and either torn down or used for Jewish residents. Uh, same day, Defense Secretary Bob McNamara commissioned a top secret study titled History of the U.S. Decision-Making Process on Vietnam Policy. Four years later, the results of that commission were leaked and published in the New York Times as the Pentagon Papers. Oh, Spielberg made a movie about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good movie. I yeah, like that good movie. movie. Yep. On June 18th, you want to know who closed out the Monterey Pop Festival? Uh, June 18th? Yeah. Uh, June 18th, jeez, uh, who? Jimi Hendrix making his U.S. debut and The Who. Ooh, oh, man. And apparently, wow. I'm, I've heard that The Who performance at the Monterey Pop Festival is one of the great rock and roll performances of all time. Otis Redding, his performance at Monterey Pop is also really great. It, it, I, I can't imagine being in something like that. And I know we're oh, spending yeah. a lot of time on what's going on in the world, but there is so much going on in the world at this time. Mm. On June 19th, the former prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, suggested that we immediately create an autonomous Palestinian state in the West Bank, which, of course, never happened. And he felt that that Palestinian state should be linked to the Mediterranean, so they had a way of uh, trading with the rest of the world. It should be protected by the Israeli army. He also wanted Jordan to have access to the Mediterranean through Israel. In other words, he was trying to create peace mm -hmm. in a way that, sadly, never really happened. Wow. Mm -hmm. Would you like to get into a mock time? Let's do it, my friend. Starts up in the corridor. Kirk climbs out of a ladder, which I like, which I like is the opening of the thing. And who runs up but Dr. McCoy, who says, It's Spock. Have you noticed anything strange about him? No, nothing in particular. What? He's become increasingly restive. If he were not a Vulcan, I'd almost say nervous. Well, you know, at this point, Kirk is like, Oh, it just sounds like Mrs. Spock in one of, a, one of his contemplative phases. Yeah. Kirk's not really this too concerned about it. But then we see Nurse Chapel. Great use of her in this episode. And she's kind of trying to sneak by, and McCoy spots her and sees that she's carrying a bowl and goes, oh, what's this? Oh. Vulcan plumique soup. And I'll bet you made it, too. And, he, and then he says, which I think is not nice. You never give up hoping, do you? <laughs> and she goes into the, his room, because we're apparently right outside Spock's quarters, and McCoy and Kirk continue to talk and McCoy says when I suggested to Spock that it was time for his routine checkup your logical unemotional first officer turned to me and said you will cease to pry into my personal matters doctor or I shall certainly break your neck and at that moment we hear a very irritated Spock what is this and as that's happening the plumbing soup goes flying across the corridor and splatters all over the bulkhead, and the chapel runs out. Well, and she screams. She screams. Oh, yeah. yes, that's right. She screams. So from the start here, uh, in the earlier versions of the story, we hear McCoy talking about this behavior to Kirk. And it was Dorothy Fontana who said, mm. instead of hearing about it, Let's see it. Absolutely. Let's see it. And again, uh, you know, we have talked about this quite a few times already on Enterprise Incidents. 
it's always so effective when you hear something before you actually see mm-hmm. it. And we hear Spock in a way that we have not heard him before. If I want anything from you, I'll ask for it. And there are Kirk and McCoy looking at Spock like, what is the matter with you? And he walks up and filled with emotion, I would say, says, Captain, I should like to request a leave of absence on my home planet. On our present course, you can divert to Vulcan with a loss of about 2.8 light days. And Kirk starts to ask him what's going on, and Spock shuts him down and says, I have made my request, Captain. All I require from you is that you answer it, yes or no. Goes back into his quarters, the door shuts, and Kirk was like looking around like, okay, what the hell just happened? And that brings us to the end of a very, very intriguing trail, a teaser. Well, and what I what I want to say, and this is what was so different for me watching it this time, it's like, yes, we've said many times, there isn't such a thing as continuity as we would talk about it in, you know, later television, in early Star Trek. But that doesn't mean that things weren't being built. And what I, what I really thought, particularly this is the opening of season two, is that we've been learning about this guy, Mr. Spock. We've been fascinated by this guy, Mr. Spock. We have an understanding of who he is. So him coming out in this scene after watching the whole first season of Star Trek must have been absolutely stunning because of what had been built up episode by episode throughout the first season. The before, before this episode even really gets underway, when you were doing your rewatch, getting ready for this deep dive, was there anything about this moment that already struck you based on the linking, the, the connection, the, the, the serialized way we connected season one? Two, two things. One, the use of chapel mm-hmm. that had really been established. And two, the friendship with Spock and Kirk. Right. Yeah. Okay, now we talked before, and you brought this up many times, that line, when I feel friendship for you, I'm ashamed. Now, can I assume that you're going to bring that up later? You can. This? Okay. It is literally then, in my notes. Then I will, I will hold off on asking <laughs> my next question. <laughs> it's, we're, it's act one, and Kirk is, turns to Spock and says, All right, Spock, let's have it. And Spock's line is so interesting. He says, It is undignified for a woman to play servant to a man who is not hers. I did not I'm more wish- interested in your request for shore leave. He's referring to Chapel bringing him the soup when she's not his woman. Well, the other thing that's interesting about the line, considering where this episode goes, is it reveals a certain idea about male-female relationships in Vulcan culture. And when I, when I was watching this episode early on, like, you know, as a kid, I thought that that's what Spock was actually referring to. I thought he was referring, like, like to, to like what was going on in Vulcan with, to, to Pring mm. that we haven't even seen yet. But it wasn't until much later, more recently, that I realized he's actually just talking talking about chapel. Chapel. Uh. Yeah. And Kirk is trying to ask him things. And he says, you know, that Spock has never wanted shore leave. Surely I have enough leave time accumulated. It's like, don't I have enough vacation days? I haven't used my sick days (laughs) or my vacation days. I should be able to take a personal day. If there's a problem, some illness in the family. No. And you can see that Spock is holding so much in. Well, when Kirk says, all right, well, well since uh, we have to go to Altair 6, you know, and Kirk is about to walk out the door, and Spock gets up in almost a, a rage. No, I must. And as he composes himself facing Kirk, behind him, he is clutching something really tensely. Like a pen. I wish to take my leave on Balkan. And I love it because it's like you can see both sides. You can see the side that's pre- presenting a calm facade. 
and the part of him that's completely falling apart. When I was a six-year-old Star Trek uh, fan, okay, you know, getting into Star Trek yeah. for the first time, there were a few episodes in which Spock actually scared me. Yeah, you said that. Mirror, mirror. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was the first one, you know, uh, that I saw uh, ever, first Star Trek episode I ever saw. Uh, of course, the other one that where I, I, I got scared of him was uh, This Side of Paradise, hmm. uh, the scene in the transporter. Right. But this episode, you know, this scene when, when Kirk is trying to, to reach out to him and say, what, what do you need? What's the matter? And the way that Spock is clutching the pen uh, behind him and, and his hand is shaking, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't, I, I, to this day, I don't know if that is a touch that, that Nimoy brought to that or if that was direction that he got from Joseph Pevney. But it's a or it could be touch. in the script. Of course, it could have been in the script. Like, yeah. it could have been Thur- the Sturgeon yeah. or any one of the other yep. writers. But it's a great touch. Absolutely. Spock, I'm asking, what's wrong? And there's that sort of, I'm asking as a friend, like, you, you, I need you yeah. to tell me this. And you can see there's Spock almost wants to answer because he says, I need, and then he doesn't finish the, the, I don't think he says what he was going to say. And then he just changes it to rest. I'm asking you to accept that answer. And that was enough for Kirk. Well, and that's over. the moment. Have you, I'm sure you've had this with a friend where someone said, I'm asking you to accept that mm-hmm. in one way or another. Sure. I need this from you as a friend. Absolutely. And there's pause and Kirk goes to the monitor and says, Rich, Helm. Yes, Captain. Alter course to Vulcan. Increase speed to walk forward. Aye, sir. And as Kirk is getting ready to walk out, Spock's quarters turns to him, says, I suppose most of us overlook the fact that even Vulcans aren't indestructible. And then Spock has this private moment where he's looking at his shaking fist. No. Grabs it, grabs his fist with his other hand and says, We're not. What's so great about this is that part of what makes this work is the history. Because you think of what Spock has overcome in the past. Like Spock was tortured by the Klingons and didn't give up his information in Aaron of Mercy. Like we've seen Spock deal with really, really difficult things. And this is something he can't deal with. And underscored, no pun intended, is the amazing score yeah. by Gerald Freed. A score that goes through so many changes and and but but keeps a lot of the same themes a lot of the same motifs which is actually brilliant and i'm certainly going to get into that uh, i'm definitely going to going to highlight the score more than we've done uh since we've been doing enterprise yeah. incident steve but right away while we're in spock's quarters and, and we're hearing hearing some of the themes of gerald freed's score feels very otherworldly it feels very alien and eerie well and there's this one of the many themes is and i think it's in this scene is the theme that is forever going to be associated with Spock and with Vulcan. You know, the dun, 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 dun. Oh, the, well, well that, that theme, you know, the, the use of the bass. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's basically Spock's theme. Yeah. And if you've ever wondered, gee, I wonder who plays the bass guitar uh, for, for Spock's theme, I can tell you uh, that it is jazz guitarist Barney Kessel. Barney Kessel. Barney Kessel plays the, the bass during the Spock's theme. Total digression, it'll be really fast, but it's so fascinating. There is a bunch of dudes that played on 
everything, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. particularly in the 60s that just like on rock music, on movies, on just on everything. Um, we're on the bridge. We hear in the log that we're heading off to Volk- Altair 6 via Vulcan. And then we get a message from Starfleet saying whatever ceremony this is on Altair 6 is going to be a week early. Don't have time to go to Vulcan. And I love the camera work because we're hearing this and the camera pulls back, revealing Spock, hearing the news that he ain't going to get to go to Vulcan. And, and the way Spock is hunched over into a science station, but he's not looking in his monitor. He's looking like straight ahead at the view screen because he is listening to Admiral Comac. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're listening to a message from Comac uh, saying that they have to uh, get there a week early because this new president is being uh, initiated uh, on Altair 6. And Kirk gives his orders to the navigator, which is Chekhov. Chekhov at the, at the navigator station, uh, still wearing this wig for, I think, the last time. Oh, is this the last one? This is the last one with the, with the famous, or infamous, rather, Chekhov wig. And, and Kirk just kind of plays it off as, you know, sorry, sailor's luck, Mr. Spock. Or as one of Finagle's laws puts it, any home port the ship makes will be somebody else's, not mine. And, and, and he's looking at Spock like, like the, the look on Kirk's face. He says this, you know, with some levity. But when he says that comment. Don't worry, I'll see that you get your leave as soon as we're finished. He looks at him like to say, like, are you OK with that? <laughs> like, yeah. is that cool? <laughs> I'm. Quite understand, Captain. And then we're back in Kirk's quarters, and he's lying on his bed, fully dressed and thinking, and calls up to the bridge to check off and says, How late will we arrive for the ceremonies if we increase speed to maximum and divert to Vulcan just long enough to drop off Mr. Spock? And Chekhov is confused. I don't understand, Captain. How far behind schedule will diverting to Vulcan put us? We're on course for Vulcan, Captain. As Mr. Spock ordered. And Kirk just says that, thank you, Mr. Chekhov. And again, you know, Shatter's just really good. You know, that yeah. he's very uh, dialed back. He like is, you can see what he's thinking. Like, what? Like, what's going on here? And I love the way they handle the next moment, which is Kirk goes to the bridge and just says, uh, Spock's at the science station, and he says, Mr. Spock. Kirk is standing at the Torber lift, and he's got his, his hands on his uh, hips. Come with me, please. You've been a bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the scene in the turbo lift is great. You changed course for Vulcan, Mr. Spock. Why? And Spock genuinely doesn't remember that he did that. Right. I think. He doesn't remember. I, I believe him. I believe yeah. Spock that he just, uh, because, because as we see later, the uh, Ponfar has such a powerful hold on Vulcans. Captain, lock me away. I do not wish to be seen. I cannot. No Vulcan could. Explain further. Trying to help you, Spock. Ask me no further questions. I will not answer. The score that is playing right now, the theme, is called Prognosis. I order you to report to the sickbay. Sickbay. Complete examination. McCoy's waiting. Spock exits the turbo lift. The doors close. And this is really interesting. We see Spock sort of meandering in the corridors of the Enterprise. And we see all the other officers, all the other crew members, personnel walking by him. You know, the Enterprise feels like a busy ship. Yeah. Feels like there's 430 people on the Enterprise. Um, didn't feel that way in season three, but it still feels that way in season two. And we see that Spock, he's just kind of disoriented. Like he doesn't know where he wants to go. Does yeah. he go to sickbay? Does he go back to his quarters? So he goes to sickbay. He walks in and there's Dr. McCoy. 
Come in, Spock. I'm all ready for you. And I love Spock's way of trying to get out of it. He goes, <laughs> My orders were to report to sickbay, Doctor. I have done so. And now I'll go to my quarters. And McCoy's not having any of it. He says, My orders were to give you a thorough physical. In case you hadn't noticed, I have to answer to the same commanding officer that you do. But then he, then he changes his tone, changes his strategy, mm -hmm. just like Spock changed his strategy with Kirk. Instead of insisting to go to Vulcan, asking him, please, you know. Yeah. So now McCoy does the same thing with Spock. He changes his tone and says, Come on, Spock. Yield to the logic of the situation. And Spock says, Examine me. For all the good it'll do either of us. And by the way, really cool little piece of design that you actually step onto this bed vertically and then they rotate it down, swing it down, and that the camera pushes in on his hand which is twitching. And then we cut to the bridge for, I think this is one of the key Star Trek relationships that we're seeing here, which is Chekhov talking to Sulu. First we're going to Vulcan. Then we're going to Altair. Then we're headed to Vulcan again. And now we're headed back to Altair. I think I'm going to get spacesick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I see, again, this, this kind of plays into a conversation we, we had on Metamorphosis and definitely on Friday's Child, definitely in Who Mourns for Outer Nice. You know, we, we see a lot more development into the supporting characters at this part of Star Trek in the beginning of season two. It's not just about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. What I think is interesting at this point, which is different from what was happening in season one, in season one, there's actually a lot of time given to Sulu at the very beginning. Yeah, sure. And we saw a bunch of different stuff he does, the fencing and the, the botany and stuff like that. But we didn't see it as part of the culture of the ship. And I think what has happened in season two is that we've locked in what all the relationships are with the supporting characters. Yeah. That Scotty is the next in command who takes over. He outranks Sulu. That Sulu and Chekhov are friends. They're like a unit together. We have Chapel's relationship much more established in terms of Spock, in terms of Dr. McCoy. Like, it all feels like, oh, this is how the ship works. Yeah. Like, and, that, and that's what gets locked in for the rest of Star Trek. I, I completely agree. Yeah. This is why, one of the reasons why, and I've said this many times, why I think that we're in this period where, where Star Trek has really hit its stride. Jim, you've got to get Spock to Vulcan. Oh, I will, I will. As soon as this mission is completed. No, now, right away. If you don't get him to Vulcan within a week, eight days at the outside, he'll die. He'll die, Jim. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and in Act 2, we come right back to the same spot, and Kirk's asking, why? Why must he die? Why within eight days? Explain. And McCoy just doesn't know. There's an imbalance, and McCoy just can't explain it. There's a growing imbalance of body functions. As if in our bodies, huge amounts of adrenaline were constantly being pumped into our bloodstreams. Now, I can't trace it down in my biocomps. Spock won't tell me what it is. But if it isn't stopped somehow, the physical and emotional pressures will simply kill him. So Kirk says, you say you're convinced he knows what it is. He does. And he's as tight-lipped about it as an Aldebaran shell mouth. <laughs> Whatever that is. Whatever an Aldebaran shell. They're actually really delicious. You saute them with a little garlic. It's really <laughs> nice. Um, so I have a question for you. Yes. How many Vulcans serve in Starfleet? Great question. Great. That's a really, really great question. At this moment in time. Well, at this moment in time, uh, I think that Vulcans serving in Starfleet are rare, but 
first of all, we've established that Spock was there during Captain Pike when Captain Pike commanded, and we're going to see a whole lot of that in the brand new sure. s- these uh, you know strange new world show, which I cannot wait for. Uh, but we also have uh, you know from uh, Star Trek Enterprise to Pell. Uh, so she, you know, was there in the 22nd century, right. uh, serving on, you know, that, that era's yeah. Starship Enterprise with, uh, Captain Archer, but, uh, oh, oh, well, okay. Here's the answer to your question. Yeah. There are at least 428 other Vulcans. On the Intrepid. On the Intrepid. Right. In the Immunity Syndrome. But I, cause here's, here's the thing. I, what can we deduce about Vulcan culture? And there's a lot here and the more i think about vulcan culture the weirder it gets it is really strange and what i realize is this thing that spock's going through that nobody knows about is a really really big deal and so so if there were a bunch of vulcans serving in starfleet you just wouldn't be able to keep this thing a secret oh i see what you're saying you know like it would have to come out and i think and it makes me think about styles in balance of terror Mm -hmm. because part of i think the racism comes from the mystery of what the Vulcan culture is. Like, I actually think, because when, when we go down to the planet, which we're going to later, they don't know anything about Vulcan culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's everything is totally new to them, which means this culture is extremely secretive. Well, I think that the purpose of a mock time as a produced episode is to reward the fans who made Star, uh, Spock such a popular character. Right. And the chance to really dive into sort of a tribal culture, so to speak, right. which is interesting that you're following Friday's Child, which was this this tribal culture written by Dorothy Fontana, with another another world, but at the same time, because Star Trek has been expanded in such a way, where not only have we gone hundred years into the future with Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, and those shows, right. and now discovery in the 32nd century but because of discovery uh taking place initially before captain kirk's time and because of captain archer on enterprise yes uh you know there's a little bit of a a corner they back themselves into with like how could they not know more about vulcan culture by this time especially when there's a whole other starship that's full of vulcans but for for this for the purpose of this episode it is such a, a great reveal the way it all the way it all plays out. And you know, also the thing to remember is that you brought up Styles from Balance yeah. of Terror. Well, it was in that episode in Balance of Terror exactly. it was established that the Romulans yep. are an offshore are related to the Vulcans. And you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, the Vulcans were savage. Then and a, a component of the Vulcans established a logical way of life that they have adapted but a section of them didn't and they became the romulans so this what spock is going through as we will learn with the ponfar and the caliphy is a is a remnant of the savage the savage uh, ancestry they had before they adopted their 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 logical uh culture well let's let's I, th- there's a lot there that I want to talk about, but let's let's hold off until we get there. The one the one thing I do want to say is so uh, two two things. Uh, something we're gonna I think have to address as we go along in the show is how much do we care about things introduced in the later shows? 
You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like, what's interesting for me is really thinking about, for the most part, the original series kind of isolated. And when it connects well to stuff that happens later on, great. And when it doesn't connect well to stuff that has happens later on, I I'm not, I don't care that much about the stuff that happens. Yeah, later I don't on. either. You know what I mean? Really don't. Like I don't need to explain how Spock had a half sister and what that affected on his relationship in this series. You know and, what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't I don't care that the Zephyr Cochran that we saw in Metamorphosis was doesn't so really match different. Yeah, from or it doesn't match with uh, yeah uh, the version we saw in First Contact. Because I think That's this okay. is this is our our world. Right. The uh, the other thing is I do, but I do think from these clues is. I think the reason that the Intrepid is entirely staffed by Vulcans is because they are so damn secretive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that Spock serving with a bunch of humans is really, really, really unusual. That they don't actually want people in on their business that much, you know? Right, right. And the only other time, like, when, we're, when, when we get to an episode like uh, the Doomsday Machine and we're listening back to Commodore Decker's Captain's Log, he refers to a science officer named Masada. Mm. Uh, Masada sounds like a like a cool name for a science officer, but it doesn't sound like a Vulcan name, right? So I guess uh, coming back to the top of your question here is uh, it is extremely rare, I think, that yeah. outside of the Intrepid, it's rare to have a Vulcan in in in, in Starfleet on a hum- on a mostly human ship. Well, and again, lack of contact and a lot of secrecy adds fuel to Styles's racism and maybe mm. Boma's racism too. Oh, that's you true. You know what I mean? From Is the that, Galley of Seven. Yeah, because we don't have content. I mean, that, you know, there, by the way, there are a whole bunch of studies where if you track um, how people feel about people that aren't like them, whether it's by race or um, sexual orientation or stuff, it is really, really directly proportional to how many people they live near. If, if you live near a lot of people that are of a different race, the general racism level goes down. Yep, absolutely. Yep. We go to Spock's quarters, and he is looking at a picture of a Vulcan girl. Okay, the Vulcan girl he is looking at is young to prank. And Steve, yes. have you ever wondered who plays the girl in that photo? Who is young to prank in that photo? I am wondering it right now. Okay, uh, the young woman's name is Mary Rice. Mary Rice, who, uh, you know, it's just her name. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like she went on to become like a four-time Academy Award-winning actress. Uh, <laughs> you said, and that girl is Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but uh, Mary Rice, that photo was taken on June 16th, 1967. And if you notice in the photo, you only see uh, uh, the left side of her face. Uh, that was because they, they did not make up her right ear as a Vulcan. I love it. They only made it like, <laughs> love it. I love it. I love cheap stuff. That's great. That's the best. Um, and there's a buzz and in comes Kirk and he's going to get some answers. McCoy has given me his medical evaluation of your condition. He says you're going to die unless something is done. And now Spock reaches for that same thing, pen, pen yeah. whatever it was that he had held behind his back before. And Kirk grabs his hand and sees that Spock's hand is shaking. You've been called the best first officer in the fleet. That's an enormous asset to me. You know who told him that Spock is the best first officer in the fleet? McCoy in the last episode of the last of right. last season. In Operation yeah. Annihilation. Yeah. So I have to say I was really wrong about something. What's that? In our conversation with Ralph on this side of paradise. Ralph Sinesky. I talked about yes, 
Ralph Sinensky, I talked about that I wish Kirk had apologized for getting rid of the spores because that essentially ended Spock's love and happiness. And right. I wish he had said something. Mm-hmm. And Ralph said, well, he, he, he said the thing about it hurt you more than it hurt me. That's his way of saying that. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of bothered by that. And I was wrong. Ralph was right. And the reason is, is because what he is saying in this moment, because he's talking about him as his first officer. If I have to lose that first officer, I want to know why. This is him expressing his friendship. He doesn't express, you know, the culture of these guys is to some degree the male culture of the 60s. And you don't express that stuff. And so this is his way of expressing friendship. Absolutely. There's a thing no outworlder may know. Vulcan understands, but even we do not speak of it among ourselves. It is a deeply personal thing. Can you see that, Captain, and understand? No, I do not understand. Explain. Consider that an order. And Spock holds his ground. He says, you know, there are certain things that transcend the service. And Kirk, listening, listening, like he is very good at listening and, and changing his strategy. Would it help if I told you that I'll treat this as totally confidential? And Spock slowly starts to try to tell Kirk what it is. He says it has to do with biology. Vulcan biology is the music cue that we start to hear as Spock is explaining Vulcan biology. Music cue from Gerald Freed which is going to undergo a bit of a transformation as this monologue continues. What kind of biology? Vulcan biology. You mean the biology of Vulcans? Biology as in reproduction? And I love that Kirk's reaction to it is like, oh, he's embarrassed about sex. There's no need to be uh, embarrassed about it, Mr. Spock. It happens to the birds and the bees. And Spock is like, the birds and the bees are not Vulcans, Captain. If they were, if any creature as proudly logical as us were to have their logic ripped from them as this time does to us. A couple things, Steve. If, if you were at the Emmys, okay, I guess uh, that would be in, in uh, 1968 for season two when Leonard Nimoy was nominated for a second of three supporting actor Emmys, mm-hmm. uh, each one for each season. They were going to show a four-year consideration clip mm. of Leonard Nimoy as Spock, this is what they would use. Totally. I think his delivery of this monologue is fantastic. How do Vulcans choose their mates? Haven't you wondered? I guess the rest of us assume that it's done quite logically. And Nemo's performance here is great. Phenomenal. Really, he, really great. He shakes his head. He walks back to his desk. He sits and he says, no. No. It is not. When he shifts the explanation of the Vulcan biology to, we're, we're getting into the, the explanation, something we are going to see play out, and something that is that will become part of Star Trek lore forever. Upon far. Now, the music cue that we heard for Vulcan biology is is going to go through a, a, a transformation. And we are hearing the theme as Spock is explaining the Pond Far. We are hearing the music theme for 
the cube that is actually called Ponfar. We are going to hear that theme two more times, but the tone of this music score is going to undergo a radical transformation the second time we hear it, and it is going to undergo another radical transformation the third time we hear it in the fourth act. But what Gerald Fried has done with the theme of the Ponfar throughout this episode of Amok Time is what makes this score probably the best and most famous Star Trek score of them all, even more than the Doomsday Machine. Well, and this is, by the way, in terms of music, this is what's called a leitmotif. Leitmotifs kind of begin with Wagner, and the idea is that you have a theme of melody that's associated with a certain thing, and you can transform it in different ways. And of course, the modern master of leitmotifs is John Williams. That that is, if you if you oh, study sure. John Williams' music, there are themes for everything, from mm-hmm. Indiana Jones's hat to the, the, the love you know, theme with Han and Leia. Yeah. The, to, of the, course, the Imperial March. Yes, that we hear over and over again and played, and you can play it in major keys and minor keys and high tempos and slow tempos. You know, that, 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 and it's used so beautifully in this scene. For sure. We sealed it with ritual and customs shrouded in antiquity. You humans have no conception. When he says that, it's like he kind of laughs under his breath for a minute. Like he just like you, you, you humans have no conception. He's like showed a little bit of emotion there, and not not a not in the rage that he's feeling. You know the pent up uh, rage that he's trying to suppress his emotions, trying so very hard. But uh, it's a moment of just you know, wow. You know, it's like you humans just will never get it. Well, it's several things about this. So the first one is that okay. How Vulcans choose their mate is shrouded in mystery. If you remember back to Naked Time where Chapel is talking to Spock, she says, The men from Vulcan treat their women strangely. But you're part human, too. I know you don't. You couldn't hurt me, would you? Which means that some element of this mystery has leaked out. You know what I mean? Like there's some rumor going around, like there's something weird about Vulcan's, you know, male, female. I don't know what it is that made it back to chapel. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yes. You're absolutely right. She, she makes that comment. Yeah. And you know, this was way before there was ever any, a mock time in the, in the works. Well, this is this weird thing that happens, and I don't know if this if this happened this way, but there's frequently when I'm writing something that I write something just to write it, you know, like she's wearing a blue dress because I had to pick a color. But then that ends up being important later on, you know, not because I intended it to be important. Like in, um, I remember when we did Braveheart for Cinephiles, there's the thing where the little girl, when uh, Mel Gibson's father dies, when he's a kid, she gives him a little flower at, at the funeral. And then Mel goes back and he goes and finds this girl. Well, the writer didn't know when he was writing it that the love interest would be the same girl as the girl at the funeral. And he didn't know that Mel would have saved the flower and give it back to her. He didn't know any of that. All he did was he's like, oh, this kid is sad at this funeral. Someone should do something nice for him. I'll have a girl give him a flower. Mm. You know, and this is so things you can write a thing with no purpose at all. And then that thing resonates in some interesting way later on. Um, the, the other thing that I think is interesting is he says, you humans have no conception. What is one of the main tensions in Spock? 
am I Vulcan or am I human? Right. And he's always gone, I want to be Vulcan. He's always putting forward the Vulcan side and repressing the human side. In this moment, he is full Vulcan. And why is he full Vulcan? We're going to hear in just a sec. It strips our minds from us. Brings a madness which rips away our veneer of civilization. It is the pawn far. The time of mating. And then he goes on to talking about sort of presidents in nature. And of course, we get some sciencey one, the giant eel birds of Regulus 5. And then we hear about the salmon, the salmon. going up to spawn. And I love Kirk's line. But you're not a fish, Mr. Spock. You're... No, nor am I a man. I'm a Vulcan. I'd hope that would be spared this. Why did he hope he'd be spared this? That's a great question. Well, maybe he thought he would be spared it because of his human side. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. And that's why that line... You humans have no conception. He's been trying to be Vulcan this whole time. Well, what proved that he's really Vulcan? This. Right, right. He didn't know if this was going to happen to him, and it sure has happened. It sure, yeah. It, it, it hit him like, uh, in some ways, it hit him like it would hit any other Vulcan, but it is actually, here you have a half-human, half-Vulcan person who is chosen the Vulcan way of life and has suppressed his emotion. And, and now not only has he been trying to suppress the savage side of his Vulcan ancestry, but he is also like to pour salt on the wound, trying to keep his human emotions suppressed that the, the human side of him might actually make the savage Vulcan ancestry even more extreme. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. See, that's I hadn't what I thought think. about it that way, but yeah. that is a really interesting point. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's like, you know, sure. Uh it's, it's taking it to eleven. <laughs> well, and this is so and here's what I think is so interesting about this. And and this is why I wanted to stall a little bit in talking about the Romulans. So there's something that happened where we know that the Vulcans were violent and savage at a certain point. And then we also know at a certain point they chose pure logic. Right. And we think that that's also the point where the Romulans split off and said, no, no, no we're not going to go down that road. Yeah, right, right. And we also know because of this that there's these remnants of that savage emotional past that even though they repress it seven, six years, that it's going to come out, that they actually can't fully repress it. And what I think so interesting about all this is I think the Vulcans are really, really different than how they are frequently portrayed. Is that they are? Is that in fact Vulcans are more like Spock, keeping down his emotions than we give them credit for? It's not just that Spock is keeping down the human side; it's that Vulcans constantly have to be in battle with this passionate part of them that they're repressing. I, I think that the savagery of his Vulcan ancestry, on top of his never-ending right. struggle to suppress his emotion, the, the the human side of his emotion is is fueling the savagery of his Vulcan ancestry. But the ancient drives are too strong. Eventually, they catch up with us. We are driven by forces we cannot control to return home and take a wife or die. The lighting, by the way, I I know we said it over and over again, but the lighting in this scene is great. Kirk gets up. There's a pause. He goes to him. I feel like Kirk almost wants to reach out to him. 
that Shatner has that instinct and then realizes that's not appropriate. Well, you know? remember that line in The Enemy Within when when Spock is analyzing yes, the situation. Yeah, good point. That there are the sick bay. It's Kirk, mm-hmm. Spock, and McCoy. And Spock is saying, oh, we have the opportunity to look at the difference between right. good and evil in a man. If I seem insensitive to what you're going through, Captain, understand. It's the way I am. Well, Kirk understands the way Spock is now yeah. after this yeah. conversation. And he says, I haven't heard a word you've said. Because it is off the record and confidential. And I'll get you to Vulcan some. So one of the interesting things in screenwriting, I think, and this is certainly what I teach my students, is not expressing your emotion is almost always more dramatic than expressing it. If you have characters say, I love you so much, you're the most amazing person in the world, and they, you know, which is like in uh, the Star Wars prequels, it is boring. And if you have someone say, I love you, I know, it's interesting, is that it's all about what we don't say, because what we don't say has tension. This is Kirk saying, I love you. That's what he's saying. I haven't heard a word of this. I'll get you to Vulcan. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying here. And he says, Lieutenant, get me Starfleet. And I love Chekhov and Sulu. You don't think... Maybe you ought to plot a course back for Vogue, just in case. And Spock's in his quarters with his... What is that? The Vulcan harp? Vulcan harp. And we are seeing now uh, in Spock's quarters even a a wider angle, beautifully lit Mm -hmm. by the genius himself, cinematographer Jerry Finnerman. And we are seeing a whole lot more of Spock's quarters than we first saw in part one of the Menagerie, mm. where we just saw one little part right. of him in front of the monitor. And we're seeing that that for a, 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 a logical, unemotional first officer, he he's. I love that his quarters are reflective of of, of his Vulcan uh, heritage. Well, yeah. Well, and this is the thing that we're going to continue to grow is that okay, Vulcans are super logical, but they're also super spiritual. And they're also super strong. That's <laughs> because we're about in to this see. moment. <laughs> Communication to Mr. Spock, Lieutenant Uhura here. Captain Ashley is trying to raise Let me alone. Man, he crushes that monitor. When I was a kid and I saw that, I was scared of Spock. <laughs> it's so funny because I had the total opposite, because I was so love superpowers. So Spock being super strong, I, that made me like him even more. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? Sure. <laughs> um, and then we cut to Kirk talking to the Admiral. It's, we come in in the middle of the conversation, and the Admiral's saying... You're making a most unusual request. That Admiral is Admiral Comac, played by Byron Morrow, who we will see again playing a different Admiral in Season three's For the World is Hollow and I mm. Have Touched the Sky. And basically, Kirk is trying to say, I gotta go to Vulcan, but he won't give him a reason. And the Admiral's like, no, the diplomatic stuff you gotta do on Altair 6 is too important. The delay would be at most... A day. I can hardly believe Kirk, you will proceed to Altair 6's order. Subject is closed. You have your orders. Starfleet out. Well, that's that. No, it's not. Now, what does this remind you of? Um, I don't know. Star Trek 3. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Okay. Exactly. Yes. This is basically... The word, sir. The word is no. I am therefore going anyway. It is absolutely a connection. I made early on, I remember when I saw Star Trek Three for the first time in June of 1984, June 1st, to be exact, <laughs> I went, oh, this is like that scene in a mock time when Kirk is like, oh, well, okay, I have my orders. I'm going anyway because I'm going to do anything to save my friend. Yeah, well, in, which is he didn't say 
the, his friendship to Spock, but he does say it to McCoy. You can't go off to Vulcan against Starfleet orders. You'll be busted. I can't let Spock die, can I, Bones? And he will, if we go to Altair. I owe my life a dozen times over. Isn't that worth a career? He's my friend. That's right. You're right. Which I love. And he calls up to the bridge and says, Lay in a course for Vulcan. Tell engineering I want warp eight or better. Push her for all she'll take. First of all, Nurse Chapel reacts to it, which I love. And second, Chekhov says, Course already plotted. Laying it in, sir. <laughs> Kirk's like, I, I see. <laughs> and what, I, what I love about that is that there are no secrets on the ship and that they know what Kirk is they know what what's they don't know what's happening, but they know what's happening. And, you know? and they're they're anticipating Kirk's next move. And they especially I mean, I think it's interesting that this this is this is another example of how Chekhov was on the Enterprise a whole lot earlier than we actually saw him. Because he knows, especially after the conversation with Sulu, like he knows his captain. He he he's already anticipated that he's gonna change to to go back to Vulcan, so he's already plotted He's already plotted a course. And and that is A because Sulu suggested to him, right. but also because Kirk knows he knows his captain and he knows what he's gonna do. Well, and they know something's going on with Mr. Spock. It's really, really serious. We don't know what it is, but this is also kind of the their family, you know, and they're gonna support each other. So so the the course is already plotted and Kirk orders warp eight or better. So this is where I thought to myself, where's Scotty? Yeah. <laughs> where's Scotty to say, you know, to give him the, the, the dirty look and be like, are you out of your, <laughs> you out of your Vulcan mind? <laughs> Chapel goes to Spock's quarters. You know what my reaction to this scene was this time? What's that? I was scared because the last time Chapel went to visit him, he got real, real mad. And he is, and we just showed in the last scene, Spock is super strong. Uh, but she really loves him. And she goes in and she almost, he's like asleep on the bed mm-hmm. or seemingly asleep. And she it almost looks like she's going to touch him. And then she turns to go and we hear, Miss Chapel. This scene is so weird. It's, but it's a beautiful scene. And in early versions of a mock time, there was a character named Maggie who was in love with Mr. Spock. Oh. So, of course, it was Dorothy Fontana's idea to get rid of this character that right. we've never seen before. And she's like, wait a minute. We've already established in the beginning of season one that Nurse Chapel is in love with Mr. Spock. So she should be the character who keeps going back to wanting to help him. What a great move that was. Well, and this is continuity. You know, we've been talking this whole time and saying, okay, they really weren't thinking this way. This one, 100% they were. For sure. They were remembering the scene in Naked Time. There's no question about it. They reference it. I want to talk about what the heck is going on with Spock in this scene. Okay. Because he's calmer. He's not. And he stands up and he says, I had a most startling dream. You were trying to tell me something. But I couldn't hear you. Okay, there is a lot going on in the scene. You're absolutely right. What is Spock thinking? What is his motivation here? Because the last time Chapel went into his quarters, he reacted very violently. Right. So I think, for one thing, Spock is showing empathy towards Chapel. Yes. Because he feels, you know, bad about the last encounter that they had. He also knows firsthand, because of that 
encounter they had in sickbay in the naked time that she is in love with him. Yeah. And because of his human side, he completely understands that feeling because of Spock's own experience with love in this side of paradise. And I think that because, okay, and you asked a very, very great question, Steve, because of Spock's encounter with love, really feeling love, being happy for the first time in his life in this side of paradise, he is able to empathize and understand Chapel now more than he did, way more than he did in the naked time. And especially after he lost his temper with her with the soup, he is feeling a lot of remorse and and is trying to reach out to her, like basically say, I appreciate your your attention. I appreciate what you were trying to do. And he's really trying to make her feel good. I think it's I think that's there, but it seems to me there's way more going on than that. Like what? Well, the first thing is, did he actually have a dream? Where where she was trying to tell him something and he couldn't hear. Her. Well, um, Vulcans never bluff. So so we're gonna say that's true. Yep. So nobody, you never write a line like that unless you have a meaning to it. What what was Chapel trying to tell him that he couldn't hear? Like what was the meaning of this dream? That's a great question. See, I actually think let, I'm gonna put something out there that I don't think is in there, but I just want to put the idea out there. When I drink a lot sometimes, I don't always remember clearly exactly what happened. What if the naked time, the memories are foggy? Okay. Because they were under the influence of this disease. disease, Which acts like alcohol. Which acts like alcohol. Yep. And that he has, he knows that something happened with Chapel. But he doesn't know exactly what it was. Oh, yeah. And now he has a dream that you were trying to tell me something, but I couldn't hear you. And his dream is, is that he, he doesn't have a vivid, a vivid memory right. of his experience at sickbay that they had before. Another interpretation is that is just taking a, a, a more symbolic thing, is that he heard her words, but he couldn't accept them into his heart. You know what I mean? And so that's what he means when he says, I, there was something you were trying to say, and I couldn't hear you. And she's crying because she knows that he, what he's talking about. He's talking about her feelings for him. And maybe we don't know what his feelings for her are. Because the other thing is, is we talked about in this side of paradise that uh, it's Layla, is that her Layla name? Kalomi. Layla Kalomi. We talked about, well, what were his feelings for her six years ago? And I think we all kind of concluded he did have some feelings for her. He just never expressed them. It's possible Spock had some feelings for Chapel. It's possible. I, I, th- I think you're right. Uh, it's possible. But I feel like during the breakdown scene in the briefing room, in the nick of time where he's uh, uh, trying to control his emotions, I feel like there is an affection for Chapel. I would not, I would not say that the love that he feels for Chapel or the feelings that he has for Chapel approach the intensity of the feelings he had for I, I agree I, I totally agree yeah then and then this line again i don't know what this line means it could be interpreted so many different ways he says it would be illogical for us to protest against our natures don't you think it would be illogical to protest against our natures 
What nature is he talking about with chapel? Is he talking him? about her nature or his or both of them? I, he says our natures. Okay. So he has to be talking about both of them. And I think he's, because there's this weird way that he's saying, you know, it could be interpreted of we're attracted to each other and we shouldn't protest against it because he's in a vulnerable slash horny situation yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 but, and certainly her nature, she is in love with him. He knows that or it, to some degree senses it. I don't understand. And she's crying. Her face is wet. I think she's completely shook. By his because his behavior is really weird in this scene. Yeah, he's leading her on in some ways too. There's something's going on here, and she tells him that they're heading to Vulcan, and he nods, and then he says, "Miss Chapel." Miss Chapel. My name is Christine. Which is exactly what she said in the Naked Time. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Exactly. Yes, I know Christine. Now, and this is where I go. Maybe my alcohol. He doesn't quite remember idea is wrong because yes, I know Christine. I think he's saying. I remember when you told me this the last time. Right, it's coming back to him. Um, and then, he, I think they're, he's right on the edge of expressing emotion to her in some way. And then he covers it by saying, Would you make me some of that lomax soup? Oh, I'd be very glad to do that, Mr. Spock. This is probably the closest that they have gotten in the original series. Not including Return to Tomorrow when, right. you know, he's in her body, you know. To get away from, right. you know, uh, uh, while they're battling uh, Sargon's people. Um, but I feel like this moment is like the strongest connection that Spock and Chapel have in the original series. Absolutely. This wrecked me. I actually was crying in this scene. It just hit me really hard. Yeah, it's beautiful. Because it's beautiful of the connections scene. with Naked Time. Um, we've arrived at Vulcan and our three, you know, Kirk, Scott, Spock, and McCoy are together. Captain. There is a thing that happens to Vulcans at this time. Almost an insanity, which you would no doubt find distasteful. Will I? You've been most patient with my kinds of madness. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I just suddenly went, let's count them. Yeah, How many kinds of madness them. has Spock had to deal with with Kirk had? We had the enemy within. We had the naked time. There's kind of what little girls are made of because he had the android Kirk that he's dealing with. Definitely in Miri. Definitely in Conscience of the King. Kind of in Arena. Like he's watched Kirk go yeah, around the bend. Yeah, now it's not the time. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, a yeah. bunch. A bunch. Then, would you beam down to the planet's surface and stand with me? There is a brief ceremony. Is it permitted? It is my right. By tradition, the male is accompanied by his closest friends. He's asking him to be his best man. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what is happening. I also request McCoy accompany me. So he wants McCoy to be his groomsman. Exactly. Well, and the thing is, the friendship between Kirk and Spock has been expressed to some degree. And definitely he said, when I feel friendship for you, I feel ashamed all the way. And I think we've said that in City on the Edge of Forever, that's the culmination of them fully understanding their friendship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the peak of the test of their friendship, right. too. The friendship between Spock and McCoy has never been expressed until this moment. I shall be honored, sir. And, and this is where I go like, for me, watching this as a kid, where all the Stark episodes, they just were all the episodes, it was like, well, of course they're best friends, because I've watched the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. But now watching it in order and really thinking about the order and going, oh, this episode is a culmination in so many ways. And one of them is this moment. He, says, he tells McCoy, 
you're my second best friend. Yeah. You know, right. that's mm-hmm. what he says to him in this moment. And, and and I think that's part of the reason why when we when we move forward, you know, you have more moments where McCoy challenges him, especially when when you know Kirk isn't around and, and, right. and, and Spock is in is in command and, and McCoy doesn't. I mean that happens a lot. It game serves a triskelion and yeah. uh uh you know that which survives uh the Tholian web. Yep. Uh, you know, because they've they've had this connection in a mock time, there is a uh, uh, there's a wall that that comes down between them where McCoy is able to to challenge him more than he ever did, and also also try to connect with him and and challenge him on a personal level, not just on a on a command level. And I think about too, it's like a this is this you know '60s male culture, but B I go well. How many relationships do I have? Close relationships where I've never really expressed my feelings. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of hard to express your feelings sure. sometimes. Yeah. And you can have people that are in your life for decades and never really express them. And and I have a personal story to tell. So. So this happened literally over the weekend. I'm having a conversation with my oldest friend, guy. Our, our moms were pregnant together. I've known him my whole life. It's one, of the, it's one of those friendships where, you know, where you have a friendship where maybe you talk to him six months or two years and it's just right back Pick in. right up. Yeah, right. He's one of my best friends in the world. And we're having an emotional conversation about serious, you know, kind of family stuff. And I'm on the phone with him and kind of saying goodbye. And, and then we say goodbye. And then I immediately texted him and I said, you know what, as we were getting off the phone, I was wanted to say, I love you, but we, I don't think we've ever said that to each other. And I just chickened out, but I do. And thank you for being a friend. Oh, that's nice. And my friend wrote back, I felt the same way oh. and I chickened out too. <laughs> and, and I went, oh, here I am a guy in 2021 we're all supposed to be good, much better about expressing our feelings. And I'm just like Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, where mm-hmm. with this person, I was struggling about whether or not I could tell him how I felt. Wow. You know? Wow. Wow. This, this episode really brought it out, man. <laughs> it did. It really did. USS Enterprise from Vulcan Space Central. Is Commander Spock with you? This is Spock. And right at this moment, Nurse Chapel enters. And we see a woman show up on the screen. That woman is T'Pring with a red background, the red Vulcan sky, played by Arlene Martell. And guess what, Steve? T'Pring is not Arlene Martell's first brush with Star Trek. Mm. She tried out for the role of Dr. Elizabeth Daner in Where No Man Has Gone Before. But she had issues with the contact lenses. She was very, very sensitive mm. about her eyes, and she, she, she didn't want to wear the, the contact lenses. She couldn't wear them. She also read for the part, you ready for this? Mm. Sylvia in Cat's Paw. Well, I think she would be better, than, but I'm way happier that we have her here. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, the producers, when, when she was uh, trying out for, when she was reading for Sylvia, like, wait. We like her. Let's save her. And so they saved her for the right role. They saved her for T'Pring. But in the 60s, uh, and just in general, Arlene Martell has has done work on TV in The Twilight Zone, Route 66, The Untouchables, The Monkeys, Hogan's Heroes, and Battlestar Galactica. Spock, parted from me and never parted. 
never and always, touching and touched, I await you. Uhura looks at her, shake her head like, but she's lovely, Mr. Spock. Who is she? She is to bring my wife. Whoa! That's the end of an act. <laughs> Absolutely. So first of all, it's a stroke of genius to have Chapel walk on the bridge the moment before this happens. It adds so much more weight to the moment. And the other thing I think about, I wonder, and I haven't memorized all of 50s and 60s TV, but I don't know that there was anything like this, where expectation and mystery was built around a character, and then there was reveals and explorations of those mysteries. You know, that is moving television forward to places that it would become very regular to do that. But I don't think... I don't think there were things like that in Gunsmoke or Bonanza. Or, oh, no you way. Know, <laughs> Joe Friday didn't have any like secrets where we went to his, you know, his hometown and met his, you know, like, I don't think we had stuff like that. No, we didn't. You know, <laughs> you're right. Um, uh, it's an amazing end of the act. We come back into act three and there's the Enterprise orbiting around Vulcan, the red planet Vulcan. And I love the music theme mm-hmm. for this while Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are beaming down to Vulcan, this real uh, uh, sort of ritualistic type of theme that is is identified as Vulcan by Gerald Freed. And uh, this is one of the many instances that we'll hear throughout the rest of this episode that make this complete score written by Gerald Freed and composed by Freed as the best score for Star Trek. This is the land of my family. It has been held by us for more than... 2000 earth years and this set design by matt jeffries is absolutely fantastic because he didn't just design the set he designed the vulcan props too he designed everything and he was even quoted as saying back in 1968 because of the uniqueness of star trek we had to build almost every prop used on the series let's face it there aren't many prop houses that have stock in Vulcan wind chimes. Right. right. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting, if you watch the version with the new visual effects, when they are walking yeah. from the beam down point to the uh, area of the ritual, they're walking across this, this bridge, and in the distance, you see a Vulcan city. And the Vulcan city is the same Vulcan city that we see in the animated series episode yesteryear. Wow. So when they redid this special effect, they actually had the foresight to say, wait a minute, let's let's see more Vulcan, like while we can. And in the distance, while they're walking to the site, you see in the distance the same Vulcan city that we see in yesteryear. Um, Spock goes uh, off towards this gong in the middle of the ritual area, and we have Kirk and McCoy talk a little bit about what this is, that it's, you know, this ritual is called marriage or a challenge. In the distant past, Vulcans killed to win their mates. They still go mad at this time. And then we hear some, this is kind of what we've been talking about. Perhaps the price they pay for having no emotions the rest of the time. Yep, absolutely. And the other thing we find out is it's hot. It's hot <laughs> as Vulcan. Now we know what that phrase means. Which means, and again, it's like, I don't think a lot of humans have been down to Vulcan. Right, that's true. I think this is a pretty rare thing. The marriage party approaches. Marriage party? You said T'Pring was your wife. I think this line is really interesting. 
By our parents' arrangement, a ceremony, while we were about seven years of age. Less than a marriage, but more than a betrothal. First of all, that's a really good line in terms of writing. One touches the other in order to feel each other's thoughts. In this way, our minds were locked together. So here's what I think is really interesting about this, is if you were to just come up with, okay, Scott, you don't know anything about Vulcan, you don't know anything about Star Trek, and I say, you are going to design the environment for these aliens who are totally logical. They believe in pure logic. What do you think that world would look like? Uh, I would very black and white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very sterile. Right. Very uh, technological. Very clean. And what does this world look like? It looks tribal. Yeah. It looks It looks ancient. Uh, it looks like there's a lot of culture. Again, because the Vulcans were not always logical. There was a savagery. There was a lot of emotion back in there in, in you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. But they're not erasing it. They're, they're, you know, they go through this ritual where, where it, it goes back to their savage ancestry. So that's why that, that, that still exists. Well, I wouldn't say, so I, I, the only thing I would, I would argue, not argue with, I don't think this is primitive or savage. I think this is spirit. This is religious. Sure. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like it's, it's, and, the th- and here's the thing about it. I think all of this comes from a decision that was made because of something the network was worried about way back in the beginning of season one, which is the network was worried that when they hypnotized Dr. Van Gelder, that it would hypnotize the audiences yes, watching. which is crazy. Yeah. And because of that, they came up with the Vulcan mind melt. And because of that, we learned that Vulcans are telepathic. And because of that, A, it changed a whole bunch of stuff through the rest of the first season because we see Spock use that many times. But this line exists because the network was worried about hypnotizing people. Oh, I see what you're saying. Is mm-hmm. that this line of they had a Vulcan mind meld at seven to create a link between them. And it is this aspect. It is the Vulcan mind meld aspect to me that is why the, the world doesn't look like we would think a logical world would look like. Right, right, is right. That, is that all these little pieces, or the fact that the thing in Bounce of Terror about splitting with the Romulans and being savage, it's like all those little pieces created a Vulcan world which is totally different and unexpected from what, and this is where I kind of go, I don't know if we've, I, I, you know, I think that what Star Trek understood in the original series about these different cultures is better in many ways than where they ended up later on what do you mean by that i think they went too much into the direction of vulcans are pure logical and unemotional and i think that what this episode is telling us is that that's not the truth they're more complicated than that and this is just i mean but i agree with that comment (laughs) yeah here's one of the things that the mistakes that i think was made later on is that they made all these cultures monocultures is that when we meet the romulans Basically, in Balance of Terror, they're basically humans. Sure. They're humans that live in a very specific culture. But within them, they have different personalities, just like we have different personalities. When we meet the Klingons, they're basically humans. But they're humans that have a different culture. And they're different personalities within that culture, as we see from Crass versus Core versus whoever, right? What happened later on was they said, Vulcans are logical, Klingons are warlike, Ferengi are, you know, cheap and I, I, the Frankie are real problematic yeah and yeah. they just go and they're all like that 
And I think what the, it, in a weird way, it's it's not racist exactly, but it's just you know saying, hey, all of these people are like that. Instead of going, what original series did is they're all like us, but their cultures are different. Well, well, clearly the Romulans were more like us, yeah, because of the way that Kirk and the Romulan commander right. were in each other's heads. They 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 understood each other from afar. Yeah, and therefore they made. The, I think they made some of these characters less interesting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when they tried to make them all be more the same, you know? <laughs> uh, but that is a big, big digression. Um, the sound of the wedding party is getting louder and louder. Spock hits the gong again, and in comes the wedding party. Okay, the marriage party approaches. Uh, originally, in the earlier versions of the story, they were supposed to fly in on a craft. That's expensive. Then they decided, well, maybe they, they could drive in in a sedan. Uh, <laughs> and then Dorothy Fontana said, how about they just walk in? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And look, the procession of them walking in feels very, very steeped in culture and ancestry. So this part of the score, when they're walking in, is called processional. And this is another mutation of the Ponfar theme. Right. And this feels very processionally, (laughs) you know? Uh, But again, Gerald Freed doing a great job of keeping the motif there. And this is where we get our first look at T'Pau. T'Pau, clearly, by the fact that she is being carried uh, by other Vulcans, and clearly by her wardrobe, which is absolutely fantastic from uh, Bill Tice, played by Celia Lovsky, who was 70 years old when she played T'Pau. She was a stage performer in Germany, and she fled when Hitler wow. took control. And in the 30s and the 40s, she was married to Peter Laurie. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, very interesting. I did not know that. Uh, but in Who TV, also fled the Nazis. Uh, right, yes, exactly. Uh, so in TV, she was seen in shows like Dragnet, Playhouse 90, uh, Marcus Welby, MD, in the streets of San Francisco, and on film... She was seen in Man of a Thousand Faces, Twilight for the Gods, and Soylent Green. You remember in our season one wrap-up where I, we discussed who were your favorite guest stars? If we do the same thing for season two, yes, she is way high on the list. Okay. She is so great in every single line. She, she adds so much of this from another culture and so much power. And presence, you know what I mean? Absolutely, no. She's a she's a fantastic uh, a guest star, and uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to. But no, I don't want to rush to get there because yeah. we've got a lot of good episodes to get through. But I'm curious to see where 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 she ranks. Uh, there, where there she lands. A lot of good de- yeah, there, there are a lot of good guest stars. A lot of good guest stars in season two. There's one person I'm specifically thinking of. I'm going to wait till we get there. Uh, but also, we see another familiar face in the procession, and that procession uh, familiar face is Stan. Stan played by Lawrence Montaigne, who played Decius in Balance of Terror. Uh, so when we were doing our season one wrap, our season two preview, I told you the whole story about how Leonard Nimoy right. was playing hardball and they were thinking about getting a new Vulcan in there played by a new actor. And that actor was uh, Lawrence Montaigne, who was uh, on the list. Right. Um, if you want to hear more about that story, then please go back and check out our podcast episode, Season 1 Wrap, Season 2 Preview. But for this episode, uh, they cast him as Stan, as sort of a uh, uh, mea culpa, uh, to, uh, uh, because he never got 
uh, the regular series role that he was certainly hoping for. Uh, But for this episode, when he showed up, they asked him to shave his chest, and he did not want to shave his chest. So that is why, unlike the other like muscular Vulcans right. you see, he's wearing this black turtleneck under his wardrobe because he, he refused to shave his chest. And also in uh, Theodore Sturgeon's original script, Stan had a different name. That character's name was Spore. So think about what's going on in this episode. Yeah, I'm glad we're not sport. Yeah, yeah. So Robert Justman felt that it was more than just a Freudian slip. So he uh, suggested that the the name be changed and it became Stan. So as the procession is going on and, and T'Pau takes her place, Spock is standing over where he hit the gong. So at this moment, at exactly 27 minutes and 46 seconds, we see the Vulcan salute for the very first time. But Steve, the Vulcan salute that we see for the first time is not given by Spock. It is given by T'Pau. So after all these decades, the trivia of the Vulcan salute is that it is T'Pau who shows the Vulcan salute for the very first time. Also part of this trivia, Steve, is that Celia Lovsky could not do the Vulcan salute. Oh, really? So if you notice, when she raises her hand, her hand is already in the position of the Vulcan salute. They had to position her hand in that way so she could just hold it there off camera and then raise her hand, and it's already in the form of the Vulcan salute because she couldn't do it. So Spock gives it right back. So this is, a, this is all happening on day four of the filming of this episode. So... One of the many ways that that Leonard Nimoy has contributed to the character of Spock, you know, was his idea for the neck pinch that we saw in Enemy Within, and it was his idea for the Vulcan salute to be given in this way, and he got the idea based on the priestly blessing performed by Orthodox Jewish Kohanim that he saw when he went to synagogue, Orthodox synagogue with his with his family when he was growing up so steve every time you see anyone raise their hand and give the vulcan salute they are giving the salute that originated from a jewish the jewish religion what i didn't know until now is i'm assuming that tapao is also jewish oh well celia lasky that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, the yeah. actress playing is, <laughs> yeah, it's is a Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> Listen, I mean um, the fact that she fled Germany yeah. when Hitler took over, I think, is a big giveaway. Yeah. Spoke are our ceremonies for outworlders. Which again goes to the point that not a lot of humans are, you know, come to Vulcan. Well, let me ask you this: When Spock is explaining how the parents arranged the marriage, where are Spock's parents? That's a good question. I think I, I, I thought of that, like, like, wait a minute, where are Spock's parents? But then I remembered, what's going on with Spock and uh, Sarek? They're not, they don't get along. They're estranged. Well, it's also, uh, Dad's an ambassador. Ambassadors don't generally live where, on their home planet. That's a good point, too. That is a great else. point. So between the fact that they're estranged, and if, if, if Sarek is off being an ambassador, then he's not going to rush back 
to uh, to be at the wedding for the son that he doesn't approve of because of someone at the Starfleet. Of course, we learn about all this in Journey to Babel, sure. which is going to be a great podcast when we get to it. But uh, that is why, uh, you know, as soon as I ask myself, why, why aren't Spock's parents here? I answer my own question, and you just reinforce that answer because he is an ambassador and he is off-world. All of this is just so mo- moving because now Spock has said out loud, they are my friends. They are not outworlders. They are my friends. That's a big, big deal. She calls them forward. They introduce themselves. He names these outworlders friends. I love, by the way, the use of the word the, both because I love the ritualized language, but also because I love how T'Pau says it. Yeah, yeah. She's got just a fantastic accent. How does the pledge their behavior? With my life, T'Pau. Wow. Mm -hmm. Which means this is some big stuff going on. And there's also the other person who's watching this very carefully is T'Pring. Because T'Pring is going to come up with a hell of an idea. She is so strategic and manipulative. And the way that T'Pring is acting in this episode is very much the way Dorothy Fontana wanted to write the character of Elian in Friday's trial, uh, Friday's child, really calculating. But Roddenberry dialed Elian back in a way that, that Fontana was not happy with. And so it's like the main reason that Fontana doesn't really love or did not love Friday's child. Mm. But she put a lot of that calculating behavior, as we will see and hear throughout the rest of this episode, into to prank. What we are about to see comes down from the time of the beginning. Which is, to me, like, that's the split with the Romulans. You mm. know what I mean? That yeah. is the time at the beginning. Mm. This is the Vulcan heart. This is the Vulcan soul. This is our way. And we hear... Carry far. And they shake those Vulcan wind chimes. And Spock heads over to the gong, and he is about to hit it when we hear... Pring interrupts Spock, stopping him, put her, putting her hand in front of the gong, say, screaming, Kadifi! And Spock is in shock. He drops the hammer, and we hear the beginning of the theme by Gerald Fried called War Sash. It is another variation of the motif established in Ponfar, but now it is much more dramatic. It is much more dramatic and very effective. Uh, Amazing. And Spock is shocked and in a daze and walks away, hands held sort of in a prayer position. And Kirk asks, what's going on? She chooses the challenge. And at first they think he's got to fight the huge muscly guy. Yeah, McCoy goes, with him? (laughs) and And she says he acts only if cowardice is seen. Which means this is heavy stuff. Like, I don't know what he does if someone shows cowardice. Well, but that, that big... It seems uh, like he might kill him. He might chop their heads off. Yeah. Spock. Do not attempt to speak with him, Kirk. He is deep in the plactal, the blood fever. Okay, so Spock at this point, he is so far gone. He's not there. He's so consumed 
by the Ponfar, but the blood fever that he, he's not acknowledging Kirk and McCoy. And now she offers the off-worlders a chance to leave. We'll stay. Spock chose his friends well. Now, to be clear, they have no idea what the hell's going on. They don't. You and know. they are in for a very rude awakening, yeah. especially Kirk. Ma'am, I don't understand. Are you trying to say that she rejected him, that she doesn't want him? He will have to fight for her. It is her right. Now, this is not logical, okay? that That's the big thing about this whole thing. L- logical people would not do these things. But the logic of the Vulcans is it is a choice. Exactly. It is a choice. The savagery is still there. It is buried under thousands and thousands of years of suppression, but it is still there, and it, it rears its ugly head every seven years through the Pond Forest. So you're right. It's not logical, but it is, it is their bio. It is, like Spock said, it's biology. The brink, the has chosen the Kalifi, the challenge. They are prepared to become the property of the victor, I am prepared. I mean, this is crazy stuff, you know. The, and this the, is beautiful. Yeah. It's great writing. It's um, really, really great yeah. writing. And Kirk's looking over at Stan going, man, can Spock take this guy? And McCoy says... Not in his present state. I don't think so. Pring, he will choose thy champion. And Pring says... As it was in the dawn of our days, as it is today, as it will be for all tomorrows... I make my choice. She steps forward and she stops and Stan is like, ready. And she points at Kirk. This one. And wait a minute. Stan is not having this. No. Stan is not into her plan. Well, she just came up with this plan. She couldn't have come up with the plan earlier because she didn't know that humans were going to beam down. Oh, okay. There's no way she could have planned this. I thought... I always assumed that this was this was T'Pau's plan from the beginning, but you know she had no idea that Spock no. was going to be down with Kirk and McCoy. She, You're right. Just an hour yeah. ago, she was talking yeah. to Stan, saying, "Okay, Stan, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to choose you as my challenger, and that's going to be great." Which is why Stan's so pissed off right now. He's like, "Look, we had a deal. I was supposed to be the one, and he is totally." breaking the rules here You're right to is very calculating she completely readjusted her plan as soon as she saw these two other people with spock she said oh i got a cool move to make and yeah. i love as stan is starting to argue to says right which means stop yeah and to turns to kirk and says to within her rights but our laws and customs are not binding on thee thee are free to decline with no harm on thyself so here is one thing that makes no freaking sense at all. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, it's, you just have to accept it because it's a great episode of television. But the fact that nobody says, by the way, this fight is to the death. Before, I-, I thought about that. Sure. It's just nuts. You would, you would have to tell them. I mean, and, and even because what's going to happen is that Spock comes forward now, which is crazy for a dude in the middle of the blood fever to be able to do this. He does not know. I will do what I must to bow, but not with him. So this is Spock is saying he doesn't know that this is a fight to the death, but he doesn't actually say that. And she doesn't say it. And nobody else says it. Well, well, listen, to, in their defense, Spock is saying he does not understand. Yes. 
and and sure that's a it's a little detail that that they should have thrown out there but it doesn't take me out of the episode you know what i mean uh, no i i didn't really bump on it until uh maybe the last time i watched it and i, I thought about it and this time i was like yeah but you have to have this thing yeah, otherwise we catch. can't get to the rest of the episode his blood does not burn he is my friend this moment i never understood until watching it this time it is said thy vulcan blood is thin are the vulcan or are the human i always thought that she was saying there's a saying that vulcan blood in general is thin that's not what she's saying what is she saying she's saying you're half human it is said your vulcan blood is thin that's what she's saying because the next line is are the vulcan or are the human well, she says it is said that the Vulcan blood is thin. It is said thy Vulcan blood is thin, which is your you your Vulcan blood is thin. But I so okay. I always thought that it was she was saying referring to Vulcan blood in general. That's what I always thought too. But now I think it's actually a insult. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, she's like, calling. Like, what out, are you saying? Are you human or are you Vulcan? Yeah, she's right. saying there's always been a rumor that you're only kind of Vulcan. Are you Vulcan or are you human? And this speech is so... I don't know who wrote this stuff, but it is so good. I burn to bow. My eyes are flame. My heart is flame. Theodore Sturgeon. This is all Sturgeon who wrote this. My eyes are flame is like... Yeah, because his eyes look like flames. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Uh that is just such good writing. And then, my heart is flame. That which obviously we we have to assume my eyes are flame, my heart is flame. That these are Vulcan sayings. And Nimoy is is fantastic. Yeah, he is absolutely magnificent. And the, what, the range that he shows in this episode well, is fantastic. And what's interesting to me again is that it's the contrast with the image of the purely logical people mm. that we have this fight to the death, and we say my heart is flame. Mm-hmm. That is not a purely logical metaphor. That is an emotional. You know, so inside the logical brain is a heart of flame. Yeah. That's what Vulcans are. That's that's the that's their heritage. Yeah. In the name of my fathers, forbid, forbid. And she's having none of it. He has prided thyself on thy Vulcan heritage. It is decided. And there's music. <laughs> And, and, you know, I was thinking about just how many times does Spock choose Vulcan over human? So often. So often. By the end of this episode, he has a moment where he does not full choose human, Vulcan. Yeah. He's full human. <laughs> and they wrap a sash around his waist. The music is building. And Kirk goes up and asks, you know, what happens if I say no? And what's going to happen is that he's going to have to fight the other guy. What I love about this moment is the sense of disorientation. Mm. The ritual is really starting to kick up. and. Now we hear Gerald Freed's score take another more dramatic turn in which uh, the theme becomes ritual to the death. The Vulcan procession, they're all, they're all shaking their chimes and Joseph Pevney's direction creating the sense of the disorientation, the quick edits to the reaction shots of Kirk and McCoy and sort of the, the tilted cinema verite yeah. kind of camera with Spock and the, the flame and the, the, yep. the, the little sparks, uh, really just setting this, this alien world, this alien ritual, and a, a Kirk is really out of his league. Yeah, and he basically is like, well, Spock can't take that other guy, so the only way I can help him is to fight him. 
that's a key point. Yeah. The only way to help him is to fight him. That suggestion to the story came from the NBC standards and practices wow. man assigned to Star Trek. Stan Robertson said it's important that we establish in this moment for Kirk to fight Spock. It is the only way he can help him is to fight him. That was Stan Robertson's idea. I just want to highlight how bizarre it is that, because we've heard many times that he contributed good things. Yeah. Is that that's not the way stories about network television usually go. No, the not. standards and practices people at the networks do not usually help the show. And, and, and Stan Robertson, you know, to be a, an African-American, to be working uh, as the standards and practices person on Star Trek, uh, you know, very, very progressive. Jim, listen, if you... Bones. He's my first officer, my friend. I disregarded Starfleet orders to bring him here. See, we're really hitting on this in yep. this episode. I disregarded Starfleet orders to bring him here. Another thing, that's the pow of Vulcan. All of Vulcan in one package. How can I back out in front of her? I hate that that is the second thing he says. I don't think that should be a motivation. And particularly, so generally in writing, the second thing is the more important. You know, if I say I'm doing this because of this and this. Right, yeah, yeah. And what he's saying is, I don't want to look bad is, the, is an important motivation at this moment. And I think, and the, he's my friend. That's the motivation. Right, but I think, I think he's, he's made it clear. I mean, look, he disregarded Starfleet Absolutely, orders. absolutely. You know, he, he's staying there. He it's didn't a nitpick. He back up to the Enterprise. It's a nitpick. Yeah. I accept the challenge. Here begins the act of combat for possession of the woman Tiprin. As it was at the time of the beginning, so it is now. Bring forth the Lirpa. And boy, what a what a weapon that thing is, yeah. man. <laughs> it's a it's a big heavy club on one side and a blade on the other. And what I didn't realize it's kind of similar because what's called, I think, a chamo do, which is a Chinese horse cutter, which was a form when I did Kung Fu, I had to do a form with this oh, big wow. thing. Uh-huh. And it's a it's a big weapon with a heavy weight on one side and a big uh, blade on the other side. Damn. So I didn't really realize that it's, that actually is kind of similar to an actual but weapon. But that is an ominous looking weapon. And I love when they drop it into Kirk's hand and it's obviously really heavy and he's going... Yeah, he does not know what, how to use what it. What do yeah, I get they myself hand it into? To him and it just like, it's so heavy, it's just like, you know, it's like, yeah. whoa, like heavier than it looks. If both survive the Lurpa, combat will continue with the armed wound. We, and they say, what do you mean if we both survive? This combat is to the dead. See, they saved that line for the end of Act 3, because that line is a great way to end Act 3. Whoa, <laughs> fight to the death. Keeps the stakes keep getting higher. Well, and this is also, by the way, it, where where I would think Kirk could just go. You know what? Actually, no. And and they might say, "Look, you already said you're going to do it." It's like, yeah, I'm not doing it. You can't make me do it. I'm not fighting my best friend to the death. Well, in the beginning of Act Four, you kind of are having that moment. Now wait a minute, ma'am. Who said anything about a fight to the death? These men are friends force them to fight to one of them is killed i can forgive such a display only once big vulcan with the mask with the big sword thing has it up to mccoy's throat so you want to know what they would have done if uh, they would have killed him they would have killed but uh mccoy's like okay you win (laughs) let's have a fight okay so 
Here we go. Away we go. A mock time shifts into high gear with an act that goes down in Star Trek history as one of the best acts in all of Star Trek. This scene was filmed on days six and seven of the production of this episode. And Gerald Fried's score, the theme for the Ponfar, is about to kick into high gear and turn into a theme called The Ancient Combat, The Second Kroika. And that is the iconic, the famous, but what an amazingly choreographed fight scene that that is so perfectly directed by Joseph Pevney. Except for one thing. You can I, see I, the stunt people a little bit. But no, no, not that. But yes, that you obviously can. The, I think it's a really good fight scene for Star Trek. For all you fight choreographers out there, and I know there are tons of fight choreographers listening, Nobody would ever take a staff-like weapon and push on the middle of it against each other, which is how it opens. That is totally stupid. Why? Because the uh, I could show you, but but like the whole point, like you just go like that and hit the person in the face. You're completely unguarded. It's it's just that you would never you would oh, never you would never saying. use those weapons like that. Okay, that is just the one. Other than that, it's really good. But that one has always bugged me. Mm-hmm. That it's just not a, not doesn't make sense. But the the fight is really good. Um, and including um, Spock breaking the gong, um, we have uh, Kirk's shirt gets cut. Oh well, the the first look. This is this is important, actually, Steve. The first swing of the Lyrpa that Spock uses on Kirk, close call. Yeah. Comes, it's not only does it come at the contact where he, ripping Kirk's shirt, but he draws blood. Yeah. By the way, I gotta say, for an episode that was filmed in 1967. For that to be on TV, that like to show like that much blood across Kirk's yeah. torso like that, I mean, like that was again, that was pretty far out for 1967. Definitely a little scary for a little kid watching in the early 70s, like I was. One, one other thing they don't do in this fight scene is Spock's strength is not he's not stronger than Kirk in this fight scene. Yeah, he should have really. You yeah, know. I mean, we just saw him crush that monitor. Yeah, you're right. But again, you know, Kirk is pretty strong. He's pretty strong, sure. <laughs> um, and I love that, you know, Kirk's on top of him and Spock breaks the weapon. Uh, the scene where Kirk is on top of him is the cover of photo novel number 12. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and Kirk makes a really, really good hip throw on Spock and they knock him to, and, and then Spock knocks Kirk down. He's got his weapon above him. He's about to kill him with the blade. Spock, no! Kirk dodges it and kicks him, and then we hear... So round one is over, and McCoy, like any good corner man, is looking out for his fighter. Is this Vulcan chivalry? The air's too hot and thin for Kirk. He's not used to it. The air is the air. What can be done? I can compensate for the atmosphere and the temperature with this. At least it'll give Kirk a fighting chance. And she says, okay, go ahead. He kneels next to Kirk and says, You're going to have to kill him, John. Kill Spock. That's not what we came to Vulcan for, is it? But Kirk is absolutely out of breath, on the verge of passing out Mm -hmm. from the extreme heat and the thin air. And he gives him the shot, and Kirk goes, what's that? And he says, it's a triox compound. It'll It'll help help you you breathe. breathe. And now we get the on wound. And I like how 
Kirk gets up and he, he's like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, he does not know is, how to use it. I have not practiced with this thing. And just as he's thinking about it, Spock gets him, wraps the thing, you know, uses it a, as a whip, basically wraps it around his legs. Kirk goes down. He's trying to fight back and Spock gets on top of him and is choking him. And it ends real fast. And it's really brutal and scary. It is brutal and scary. And it does end fast. Kirk was already uh, uh, out of breath and, yep. and exhausted, couldn't breathe. And now he has this, this triax compound in his system, which is not really what we think it is. Yet Spock flips him over, choking him. He's stopped resisting. He's, he's gone. And as Spock, you know, sort of gets composed, he's standing there with the arm wound, wrapped around the neck of his friend. And this is a great moment for Leonard Nimoy. He looks at, at Kirk. Spock looks at Kirk. He has come out of it. He's, Instantly. Yeah. He's, he's through this whole process of the Ponfar. It is over. And he has come to. He has gotten his, uh, his composure and his bearings back. He is Spock again. And the moment of his consciousness, when he comes back, he first image he sees is the dead body of his friend in his hands yep. that he has killed his friend. The look of shock is extremely emotional. Well, and I go back to, man, what was this like to see it the first time on network TV? And you're watching, it's like, oh, man, Spock's got to fight someone. Oh, God, he's got to fight Kirk. Oh, my God, they're fighting to the death. And I know that when you're watching, you're going, man, how is Kirk going to get out of this one? Yeah. How, what's he going to do? What's movies going to do? And then seeing this moment, and even though you know you're watching a TV show, you know Kirk probably can't possibly be dead, but still that moment must have been absolutely shocking on network TV the first time. It oh, well, for, especially for a season two premiere. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and Kirk is dead. And I love McCoy who says, Get your hands off of him, Spock. And what I wonder is, McCoy doesn't know that he's not dead. Well, he knows what he gave him the injection of. Yeah, but if I give you an injection of something to knock you out, and then I choke you for a long time, cutting oh, off all blood and oxygen to the brain. If it's because of, of Spock choking exactly. him. Or, right, he, he doesn't know. He right. could be dead. Right, you're right. He could be dead. He doesn't know until he gets to examine him that he's not dead. He's dead. Again, McCoy does nothing to help dead people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I agree with the. And McCoy calls up to the Enterprise to get the transporter rep ready, and then he goes to Spock and says, As strange as it may seem, Mr. Spock, you're in command now. Any orders? Yes. I'll follow you up in a few minutes. You will instruct Mr. Chekhov to plot a course for the nearest star base. I must surrender myself to the authorities. Now, big shift in Nimoy's performance. Yeah. After a physical uh, immersion to an, uh, the cow fee. Yeah. And now he is, he's Spock again. Yep. But it's like he's Spock, but he's a little spent. He's still kind of catching his breath after the experience of the Ponfar and certainly with the cow fee. And he's also uh, completely shocked and, and, extremely irritated in his way. A, I think I killed my best friend. Yeah. And B, to Pring, you put me up to this. Yeah. And we hear the transporter, which saves you some money because we don't see it. And then he goes up to Pring and asks, why the challenge and why choose my captain? 
Her speech. Oh my gosh. Is amazing and brilliant and awful. Stan wanted me. I wanted him. I love, by the way, I love Spock going, I see no logic in preferring Stan to me. But the way she lays it all out yep. is actually pretty brilliant. You have become much known among our people, Spock. Almost a legend. And as the years went by, I came to know that I did not want to be the consort of a legend. That itself tells us something really interesting, which is that Spock is famous. Mm-hmm. You know? That's right. You know, that at this point, because we know, of course, Spock becomes famous later. But no, he's famous right Even now. Even by this point. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. But by the laws of our people, I could only divorce you by the caliphate. There was also Stan, who wanted very much to be my consort. And I wanted him. And then this is it. This is the cold, hard logic, man. If your captain were Victor, he would not want me. And so I would have Stan. If you were Victor, you would free me because I had dared to challenge. And again, I would have Stan. But if you did not free me, it would be the same. For you would be gone. And I would have your name and your property. And Stan would still be there. Flawlessly logical. Like, it is... Like, wow. And that's all from the writer, Theodore Sturgeon. Can, can, can I say what my note is here? And I, I will beep it out. Okay. I wrote, that is one cold-hearted. Uh, yeah, yep. She's a terrible person. I'm... This is awful. I didn't have, because I've always been amazed by the logic and gone, wow, that is totally logical. But she basically, her totally logical plan is to have one best friend kill the other best friend. In order for her to get what she mm-hmm. wants. This mm-hmm. is pure evil. You know, logical, but evil. It's, it's extremely calculating, but it is, it is absolutely logical. And, and, but Spock kind of gets the last word in this oh, case. Oh, yeah. And boy, does he get the last word. Stan, she is yours. After a time, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting it is not logical but it is often true that it's all about the chase the chase is more fun absolutely this is a 100 percent true thing it's a thing i'm trying to teach my kid but we all go through this which is you know what all i need to do is get that new new tv or the new iphone or the new you know i gotta get whatever the thing is and then and then i'll be great or get the job or get the and then everything will be great. All my problems will be solved. And then, right. For example, another example, how many times have you, you know, there's something that's coming out and you can't wait for it to come out and then you get it or you order it through, you know, mail order or whatever, and then you get it and it's like, oh, okay. You know, like I just got uh, the the big uh, uh, Paul McCartney book called The Lyrics. Right. And it is... Uh, you know, I've been waiting for this to happen, uh, you know, since it was first announced. So it came out in the beginning of November. So I pre-ordered it through Paul McCartney's website. And and it's a big book. It's heavy. I mean, yeah. it is a heavy book. So I got it. And it's now been like about a month since I've had it. And I haven't even opened it yet. Yep. But I couldn't wait to get it. Yep. But now that I have it, it's not the same feeling. L- literally yesterday, I got a new iPhone. And I... and. And I did the thing where I put them next to each other and it copied everything from my old iPhone to my new iPhone. And I look at it and I was thinking like, oh, the camera's better and the screen is better and it's faster and it's going to do all these cool things. And I looked at it and I'm like, it's exactly like my old iPhone. <laughs> it hasn't changed my life in any way. Uh, yeah. Because wanting, because yeah. having is not so pleasing a thing after all as what wanting. 
What? Okay. So, and, and the thing too, by the way, this is some major, major shade he just threw onto Pring. He just basically called her an object that you, dude, are not going to be happy with what you got. Absolutely. Good luck. Good, Good luck. luck with it. Good luck. You know, peace out, basically. So at 46 minutes and 15 seconds, we finally hear the words, live long and prosper. But what we actually hear are the words, live long, Tipao, and prosper. He puts her name yeah. in the middle of it. Live long and prosper. I shall do neither. I have killed my captain and my friend. And he beams up to the Enterprise, and Spock goes to sickbay and tells McCoy, Doctor, I shall be resigning my commission immediately, of course. Uh, Spock. So I would appreciate your making the final arrangements. And by the way, it's again, just like in the scene on the bridge, the fact that Nurse Chapel is there add something to the scene. Oh, for sure. Spock, I... Doctor, please, let me finish. There can be no excuse for the crime of which I'm guilty. I intend to offer no defense. And at that moment, behind him, in the doorway, Kirk shows up. And he's standing there, and he's smiling. I believe, again, I will beep this out, but I believe that would be described as a eating grin. That is a eating grin, for sure. Furthermore, I shall order Mr. Scott to take immediate command of this vessel. Don't you think you better check with me first? Captain. And he grabs him by the arms, you know, swings him around. Jim! That's the true Spock. You know what I mean? You remember the, the when I feel friendship for you, I feel ashamed? Mm-hmm. Well, th- it just came out maybe more than it ever has anywhere ever in the show. It is such a great moment. I don't care how many times you've seen a mock time over these decades. It is such a fantastic payoff to a uh, uh, a fantastic episode. And then he locks it down again right away. I'm pleased to see you, Captain. You seem uninjured. I am at something of a loss to understand it, however. And then we find out that that was a normal paralyzer that was a given to him by McCoy that simulated death. I mean, what? I mean, like you've had this whole episode where you've you've introduced the Vulcans, the Vulcan salute. Live long and prosper. Uh, the planet, the look, the ritual, the the legacy, the the history, and then you have this moment to kind of stick the landing. This really does stick the landing. And amazingly, when Leonard Nimoy read the script for the first time, he did not like it when Spock did this. When Spock showed that emotion in front of Kirk and McCoy and Chapel, what he wanted, what he suggested in his memo was that Spock should should go somewhere privately and let out that emotion. Like, basically go in the other room and do like a yes kind of moment, mm. but the others didn't see. Like, when he went into the briefing room and broke down right. in the naked time, he did that in private. But it was actually Theodore Sturgeon and Dorothy Fontana were like, this is, this is a great scene. Yeah. They won out. And it was the better idea that won. Absolutely. Over, for sure. Absolutely. And it's interesting that they kick Chapel out now. And I think the reason they're kicking Chapel out is because they're going to talk about the, the girl. woman, right. And they know that Chapel's in love with Spock. Exactly. Uh, and they're being sensitive to her yeah, feelings for Spock. Which for is sure. a really small but interesting thing. I asked the girl. Most interesting. It must have been the combat. When I thought I had killed the captain, I found I had lost all interest in Trepring. 
The madness was gone. And at this moment, you hear from Uhura. They've got a message from Starfleet, and it says, Response to T'Pol's request for diversion of Enterprise to Planet Vulcan, hereby approved. Any reasonable delay granted. So T'Pol, unbeknownst to any of us, made a phone call. <laughs> yeah, she made a phone call and said, uh, let, let them off the hook. Yeah. But now McCoy is going to challenge Spock to that emotional outburst. And here Spock is, 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 is doing what he typically does and finds a logical way to explain an emotional outburst, just like he did in the Galileo 7. Well, what's so funny is, is, is I love the first beat. Merely my quite logical relief that Starfleet had not lost the highly proficient captain. And Kirk is going to let him have it. Yes, Mr. Spock, I understand. Thank you, Captain. And McCoy also seems like he's going to let him have it. Of course, Mr. Spock. Your reaction was quite logical. Thank you, Doctor. And as they're walking out, uh, McCoy says, In a pig's eye. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. It's a great, this is a really good, funny ending of an episode. And in particular, because it's about their friendship. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, is that what's so great about it is that Spock knows that what McCoy said was true. He was right on the verge of a big emotional outburst. Kirk knows that. McCoy knows that. They all know the truth, and they're all playing their roles of their friendship. This is how their friendship works. It's a great scene. Come on, Spock. Let's go mind the store. With that, the Enterprise speeds away from the planet Vulcan, brings us to the end of just an episode of Star Trek that no matter how many times you watch it, it never gets old. It still packs the same emotional payoffs as it did back in 1967. Of course, Lot of lot of final words to say on this episode. Theodore Sturgeon, who wrote it, said, One reason Star Trek worked is that it, it was a writer-oriented show. Mm. I was all over that a lot. Wherever I wanted to go, I was free to go. I studied the actors. I wrote Kirk exactly the way Bill Shatner spoke. William Shatner said, What a joy, what a kick. It was so well written. They were writing things that hadn't been done on television before. The last word, of course, has to go to Leonard Nimoy. Excellent script, very poetic, dramatic, intense, and important for Spock and for the Vulcans because it was the first time we were going to Vulcan to see other Vulcans. I felt it immediately, and there was that wonderful payoff where I believed I had killed Kirk. Great moment. I think the episode is it's amazing. And, what, and what's so interesting now, watching this in order, doing this with you, is how much is coming together in this episode. First of all, we get to go to the home planet of the most interesting and mysterious character on the Enterprise and learn about that culture. And even though I don't think they had figured all this out, it really fits in terms of the split with the Romulans. It really fits in ter- terms of the battle between logic and emotion and the fact that... And, and what's so interesting about it is how unexpected the Vulcan culture is. They are ritualistic and yep. spiritual mm-hmm. and that the heart of the Vulcan is flame. It's fire. Mm. Is that, in fact, it is not logic that is at the heart of being Vulcan. It is passion that is at the heart of being Vulcan. These things are all really, really interesting. And that within the Vulcan culture, they have these rituals which are far from logical, that are really, really dangerous and intense. And I think it shows that the Vulcan, how secretive a culture they actually are. The other thing it is, is a culmination of these friendships. Yeah, for me, that's what does it. You know, it. Is, yep. that, is, that, is that we get to this place where the friendships have now locked in. Just as we said, Kirk and Spock really locked in at City on the Edge of Forever. Now the three of them 
have locked in. These are our three best friends. The way that this relationship went through its first great test in sitting on the edge of forever, it was solidified and deepened even more by a mock time. And for me, you know, sure, you've got all the stuff with the Vulcan culture, the Vulcan history, Leonard Nimoy's performance. Again, Gerald Fried's amazing yeah. score, uh, Theodore Sturgeon's terrific story and script, and Jerry Finnerman's superb, beautiful cinematography. But for me, when I think of Star Trek, when I thought of Star Trek for all of these decades, for me, Star Trek is about the Enterprise. Star Trek is about the friendship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And, and you take the other 79 episodes, including The Cage Away, this is a great representation of that relationship, the best representation of that relationship. And it is why when we see when we see the relationships tested again in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, there is such an emotional payoff with those two films because of the way those relationships were deepened and solidified in a mock time. And that's just the biggest takeaway on top of everything else is the is that relationship, is the, the sacrifice yep. and, and the, the, the banter, the volley, the chemistry between these three actors. This is why, is I'll try to make it a very, very quick digression, but this is why the climactic moment in Into Darkness does not work, is that the reason that Wrath of Khan works is because of this history. History. Is that it's the same reason why you can't reproduce the Batman-Superman fight from the comic book The Dark Knight Returns in Batman v. Superman, because those guys just met. Right, yeah, it you does know? not have the same impact. Is that, is that it's the history behind the characters that make those moments really, really Completely work. agree. The emotional stakes are so high, and, and, and yeah, don't even get me started about the last 20 minutes of Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, I will not get you started, because <laughs> I think it's time for us to end this conversation yes. about mock time. <laughs> um, but of course, we want to hear your thoughts on this incredible episode of Star Trek. Maybe you share those thoughts with us on our Facebook page. You can do a search for Enterprise Incidents. There's always good conversations conversations going on there maybe you want to share those thoughts on twitter where you can follow us at enter incidents or on instagram where it's enterprise incidents or maybe you want to subscribe to the show on youtube and leave your comments there we have great great conversations with all of you on youtube or you could also subscribe to it on apple Podcasts, where we'd love to get your reviews scott how would people reach you if you wanted them to contact you please feel free to reach out to me on twitter at movie mance on instagram at movie mance and like steve said uh, uh please uh you know head to our facebook page because the one thing we love to do steve and i love to do is to have the engagement with those of you listening and supporting enterprise incidents we are very very much uh, uh we love engaging with you we love hearing what you love about our latest podcast, and we would really love it if you shared Enterprise Incidents with your friends and fellow Star Trek fans, and please help us spread the word about Enterprise Incidents, and please be sure to leave those reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and since we watched an episode of a person kind of slowly losing their mind, I thought you might want to... To, to, you might want to learn about some movies where people also lo lost their mind that we talked about on the cinephiles. For instance, 
Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining goes completely round the bend. Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver definitely is dealing with some real mental health issues. What about Fight Club? Did you do Fight Club? Literally the next one on my list is our two-part episode on Fight Club, one of the best and most fascinating films for me of the last 20 years. And finally, Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. Oh, well, but I just want to say about Fight Club. Yeah. Remember that line? And when uh, Brad Pitt says to Edward Norton, who would you fight? Shatner. I'd fight William Shatner. So that is why you have to listen to this two-part Cinephiles episode uh, on Fight Club which with uh, Steve and, and co-host John Roca. And uh, I, I just am so excited because, you know, even though, like, like, since we really got into, started doing season two of Enterprise Incidents, yeah, I'm sure, you know, Cat's Paul wasn't a great episode. You know, Friday's Child, I think I like that more than you. But I still just love the rhythm that we are. We're, we're into the beginning of of, uh, of of season two with Star Trek, and you're using the same directors. The, you know, Gene Kuhn is at as peak as the showrunner, and Dorothy Fontana, Roddenberry, Bob Justman. Everyone is in the zone. And to follow our deep dive, on a mock time, we're going to the USS Constellation to take on the Doomsday Machine. Ooh, yes, folks. That is going to be a great conversation. There was, but not anymore. So please join us on the next podcast for Enterprise Incidents covering the Doomsday Machine. And until then, you know, keep going boldly.